Welcome back to another episode of QT with a Pod. Today, as always, I'm engaging in self-reflection, and I'm hoping that you identify with that or it makes you question your choices. Stay tuned. Today, we're going to be talking about why I stopped liking true crime podcasts. So if you know me personally, you know that I love true crime. I loved true crime. And it was always just, I, 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 when I started thinking about it for this episode, I was like, whoa, I've kind of always been a true crime buff because like true crime hasn't always been what it is in today's form. So it hasn't always been podcasts or YouTube series. It appeared in other ways. Like I'm going to go into like the history of true crime too, but true crime goes way back. And I guess it hit me one day when I was listening to one of my podcast one of my favorite podcasts um and it was talking about a case so when I was in middle school I was in the seventh grade or the sixth grade sixth or seventh grade and there was this eighth grader that killed his best friend in the bathroom like before school started and like he went I don't know if you guys have heard the story before but um like he killed his best friend in the bathroom and went back to class and like told the teacher like oh it's a nosebleed and she was like go clean yourself up he went back to the bathroom no one had discovered the best friend's body at that point and it um yeah so that story came on right and I could not find myself to listen I couldn't listen to it and I did not know these boys personally I was I mean, I was in the school at that time. My mom picked me up early. I remember the day she picked me up early because of everything that was going on. And like we heard about what was going on like in school at that point because people had cell phones. But I had no close relationship to the case itself. Just a member of the community it happened to. And I could not find myself to listen to it. And it made me think like, dang, like these are real people like at that point because we don't always think about what we hear or at least me I don't always think about like the crimes that I listen to like what if that were my sister like I I think about it of course but like what if you know and to know that I was I know this story and I was there I couldn't listen to it um, and I wasn't even that close to it. So that kind of triggered me and I was like, well, this is a different feeling, you know? So with that being said, I want to get into, I guess, my history of true crime, the official history of true crime for my research. It was hard to do this research. It was hard to do this research because there's so much research and I didn't realize I didn't realize it. But anyway, so my initial interest in true crime started as a young child. Like literally when my mom would do my hair, she would turn to Lifetime. Like whatever we were watching, she would change the channel to Lifetime. Lifetime in a sense is, well, is considered true crime, not true crime to me, but kind of like it was the seeds that I needed, right? It planted the seeds of doubt in my head that like, 
I shouldn't actually trust all of those people around me. And I am truly like that till this day. I don't easily trust people. I I am in a constant state of apprehension. I am always aware of my surroundings. I'm never truly comfortable. Like I have to force myself to be comfortable um, sometimes. And that's just, I honestly believe that that is a result of me listening to so much true crime which is why I needed to stop listening to it I'll talk about that later but it truly changed the way I was presenting myself or the way I was behaving um so excuse me so lifetime taught me like don't trust those close to you like don't trust the babysitter if you hire a babysitter don't um if you're the new kid, be careful. Watch the kid who tries to befriend you quickly. Don't trust that person. Don't trust step parents. Don't trust your peers. If you're in competition with your peers, don't trust them because that person may push you down a flight of stairs. Literally, don't trust anybody. Lifetime taught me that. And I thank Lifetime for those lessons because trust shouldn't be given easily. But it also shouldn't be that hard to earn. And for me, it is hard to earn my full trust okay so obviously I got bored with lifetime as I got older like it's predictable like okay this person this person this person's gonna do that I already know the plot cool keep it moving um the next step I can think about is now like documentary so like think 48 hours 2020 like those are the true that's true true crime you know it is reporting a crime it's reporting horrible crimes and I viewed them as like a cautionary tale so this girl did this so I know not to do this so these were real stories real people real feelings and it taught me what not to do in a sense like me just thinking of when I did watch these as a young girl okay so it kind of taught me also that nothing is impossible So with Lifetime movies, because they were set, they were always like white middle class families. I never saw myself there, right? I'm like, that can never be me, whatever, keep it moving. But with 48 Hours in 2020, like they're showing real people where they live, like their friends, their school, and it's mostly girls. Like always remember that, like it's always mostly women and girls who have true crime and gay men now. Like, I've started to hear more crimes against gay men, but truly speaking, I'll say I'm making up this percentage, but from what I've heard, 95% of the true crime stories I've absorbed or listened to have been about women and girls, okay? So, basically, teaching me nothing is impossible. Anything can happen at any time. A person can do the right things and end up in the wrong place with the wrong people, it, it literally doesn't matter like anything could happen to you at any time okay um so me listening to true crime was sort of like a security blanket for me at that time because I'm kind of like okay I would never be walking down a dark alley at night or I would never go out on a date with a random guy that late at night you know and it made me feel like it can't happen to me so it was kind of like I was listening to them to know not what to do well watching them at that point okay so now we fast forward to me as an adult because I didn't listen to true crime podcasts 
in co- I didn't listen to podcasts at all in college, maybe. I don't even know what kind of media I consumed in college. Did I? Uh, okay. Anyways, listening to true crime podcasts. So that's where I am now. That's mainly what I listen to. I know that they are like YouTube true crime channels where people do. This also got me. They, people do makeup and murder Mondays. Like there are themes set around this. There are people making money from this while doing their makeup and talking about crimes. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah. So, let's get into the history of true crime as I know it via my research. Like I said, it was like I was reading essays and I obviously didn't read them because they were 180 pages long, but I skimmed 100 page, 180 page essays, dissertations, and I was like, okay. So, True crime can be traced back to 1550 to 1700, okay? And they were they were more so like short publications that British authors wrote about capital crimes. Now you have to think about the time period, 1550 to 1700. People weren't reading at that point. Only reading was for a certain class status. So this was being consumed by the upper class in a sense okay so they usually included the pamphlets they usually included details of the crime they talked about just details of the crime court details and they posted them also on like large posters around town you've ever seen like those i don't know what they're called they're posters the big brown like poles and you have something stapled to it so they would have things like that just the details of the crime and the court details and I'm confused because people went to court but I want to know how they got to court and I'm gonna talk about why I'm confused about that in a second because I was like how it's crazy when you read about like how societies function I feel like societies from like I don't even know 300 the year 300 were more advanced than the societies in 1700 because it's not math the math is not mathing like how you take someone to court and at this point there was no police system or like policing force who took them to court why did they go to court that that's then I didn't want to get too much into it but Okay, that's where we are right there with that let me take a look at my notes okay so yep there were different types of crime pamphlets just like there are different types of crime podcasts now so there was even like there was genre classification then so you had crimes against committed against women against poor people you had your cult crime so there was definitely still um media tailored to the audience at that point Okay, so now I'm moving on to the 19th century broadsides. This is what they're called. So broadsides are the big posters that are posted on like the light poles and stuff. So broadsides and pamphlets were still published even on a larger scale now because of the penny press. So now we are printing things on a mass level. So everyone is looking at these. People are learning how to read. Okay, and now there are major authors, authors authors coming out because they're interested in crime and they're writing essays there was this essay that I came across apparently it was the most famous and it's like an original essay 
about true crime. I guess it's one of the the prime true crime essays. It's called Unmurdered Considered as One of the Fine Arts. Again, Unmurder Considered as One of the Fine Arts. I tried to read through this and I didn't get it. I did not get it at all. Okay, so the summary just says it was a fictional satire that gives an account of murders at a gentleman's club from an aesthetic point of view. Now, the description itself, of course, it didn't make sense to me. I tried to read it. And surprisingly, I don't know why I was expecting to read like thou heart was on thy palm of thy chest and the siren you know stuff like that it was written it was written in plain english maybe i read an updated version but it was easy to consume but not easy for me to digest um so it was actually so good that there was a part two now who wrote this thomas de quincey so if you want to go find that go find it again it's by thomas de quincey it's called on murder considered as one of the fine arts so this is one of the first essays about a true crime and it also gives the perspective it's from the perspective of the murderer so that's also a different lens that we're now looking through um and apparently there's a call to action in this story um, where De Quincey asks his readers to reconsider how they interpret true crime uh, again I didn't I couldn't understand it so if you read it you understand it cool sis and I I give you kudos okay now we are in the 19th century there was no formal police department in existence. So the first police force was established in London in 1829. Boston followed in 1838 and New York City in 1945. What? So now when you think about what police do, like police like go to the crime scene, they study it, they draw a conclusion, like what what is the what crime was actually committed? Um, what tools were used who do we think the suspect is like all those things who was doing that before just common town people like citizens you know what I'm but now with the emergence of a police force there came the science of crime okay so now investigation is a thing using methods investigation methods fingerprinting criminology all these things are now a thing because there's a, I guess, a profession for it now. So now there's an actual person or force dedicated to doing that kind of stuff. So when police came into rise, and now we have detectives. Detectives are here and it's no longer another thing I discovered. So it was no longer based on divinity, but intelligence. So determining who committed a crime, why they committed a crime, that's now a thing. Before it was just divinity. I guess it was God said you did it. That's what's up. Okay. So it was about who's innocent and who's guilty. I'm guessing they would now start narrowing down people. Like maybe before it was just like John john pip you did it but now it's like either john pip did it or mason did it or leo did it those are not names from the 19th century but i'm gonna keep it i'm gonna keep them okay so now we have we've already had crime crime is a thing 
is existing. Now we have media. Media is existing. Okay. We have the public. The public's ex existing. And now we have criminology. Okay. All these things are existing now. And the first time they all were put to use together was apparently the Bourdin case of 1892. Bourdin or Bourdon? Bourdin. Bourdon. I can't I can't read my hand right and I think it's an O y'all the Bordon okay so this was like and I think it happened yep it happened in America okay so this was like the first case where all of those things combined together and you've seen what it was but basically the Bordin case happened in 1892 and we had Andrew and Abby Borden who was killed by their daughter with an S did I just say that an ass an axe she was they she killed them with an axe there were daily articles published about this case allowing the general public to discuss and come to their own verdict so this was new like now when a crime's committed we know to expect to see an article about it online see a tiktok about it see a video on youtube about it but it wasn't always like that and like in 1892 that was the first time that a crime was committed now everyone can read everyone knows how to draw conclusions and people are making decisions not only that not only that now you have different reporting methods so they talked about the way the new york Times published it versus the boston globe so new york Times gave factual emotionless and not bad emotionless, but just like this is these are the facts of the case. X, Y, and Z happen. Meanwhile, the Boston Globe used sensationalized statements. They referenced the amount of blood that was found on the crime scene, body parts. They used a lot of adjectives. It was very descriptive. So now comes two different writing styles. So wowzers. Okay. So I'm going to stop there. That's where I stopped with my research of true crime because I feel like it brings us to a point where it obviously makes sense. Like I feel like now we, we've had this one news story. We all know different news sources report different ways and we look to different news sources for different things because of the way they report things and the sources that they do use. So that carried on to now true crime podcasts, of course, right? Um, so what is my problem with true crime podcasts? I clearly was interested in it, even with me talking about that. When I was doing research on it, I was like, wow, 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 wow. And even me talking about it, like, I felt wow, 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 just now. But what is my problem with it? I took a step outside of myself. Mm -hmm. I took a step outside of myself and thought about it, especially after I heard that podcast the beginning of it at least because again I couldn't listen to the entire thing about the boy from my middle school um so one it definitely it definitely can and I don't have trauma so and I want to talk about that too but it, it can re-trigger trauma like I again not a close bystander but I couldn't listen to it okay think about the family's victims like I'm wondering do people reach out to their families and say hey I want to 
report on this before they report on it? And also what's the purpose of reporting the particular crime? So there's one podcast that I listen to, Crime Junkies, and I think they do a wonderful, wonderful um, job of incorporating the victim's family into the podcast. So they'll have like the sister of a, a victim come in and give her insight to the story. And then it's also connected to maybe a fund for the family or a fund towards that. It's not just telling the story just to tell it. So I do appreciate that, but a lot of podcasts are making so much money off the backs of people dying. So that's first and foremost. Secondly, within myself, it definitely made me more anxious. So when I moved into my house, I I was very afraid. Like, I was like, oh, my God, I've heard a story about a a girl living by herself. Someone came in through her window and did this. Like, all those thoughts ran through my head because I've listened to these stories. And I'm like, damn, that could be me. So it made me very anxious. I wasn't able to sleep, really. And a lot of my thoughts about life in general turned dark. And not dark like... They turned dark because I've always I always thought about the bad things that could happen and not even just the bad things like, oh, I cannot get this job like the bad things like I could be at work and someone could come in and start shooting like those are the types of situations I think about. And I think it's good and bad because one, I do know that no area is completely safe, but also it does stop me from living in the moment and enjoying sometimes like even to this day. I don't like going to the movies at all. I hate it. Like, I forgot what year that was when, like, I feel like a bunch of shootings happened in the in movie theaters. I hate going to the movies now still because of that. Um, so that's one. Made me very, very anxious. Um, two, three, I mean, they tend to glamorize and focus on the killer. For so many murder cases, we know the killer. We then dive deeply into, and I'm saying we as a society, we dive deeply into the mind of a killer. How did he turn out this way? What are some things, like, it it becomes all about him, and that's not what it should be about. Like, if we're going to report it, report it from the victim's point of view. Like, this is about them, not not that person. So... I don't like that. I don't like when the true crimes are the podcast are named after the killers instead of the victim because the victim is the person that we should remember, not the killer. Um, And then this one made me think about it like overall, I would say as an effect on society, true crime podcasts have disrupted safety and community. Safety and community. So when we were younger... We, I mean me. When I was younger, I could go outside and ride my bike, go down the street, around the corner. My That was never a concern. But I can't imagine letting my child do that now. I don't know if it's just a thing that comes with the times or if it's truly 
me and my anxious thoughts. Like, I am not going to let my child ride down the street and around the corner without me being outside, Missy. No, ma'am. We ride together. We riding together, sis. Okay? So, thinking about, like, how I grew up, I know I can't let my children grow up like that. But also, so I'm reading this book. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. I'm going to do a review on that soon. It's coming out. But it was basically talking about, like, how we we are coddling each generation the newest generation because of new fears that are arising and it's actually not good for them because I mean when they become an adult adult things still happen you know so they don't know how to deal with conflict because we haven't allowed them to engage in conflict with other people when you hear me say bring bullying back I mean that in a nice way I truly do because there are adults out here that don't know how to deal with adult bullies because they were coddled as children. We shouldn't know. I'm not saying go everywhere being aggressive, but you should know how to stand up for yourself, you know? And I feel like this generation is losing that because hashtag mental health. That's another episode and I'll get into that. So I'm going to get ready to close this episode out because we're getting, it's getting a little long, but we've had a fruitful conversation here. So just to conclude, like I will still listen to true crime podcasts and I'm very selective about the ones that I do listen to. So do they serve a purpose? Do they focus on the victim? Um, how do they make me feel after? Do they even talk about like aftercare? Like talking about true crime also takes a toll on a person so do those people talk about like how they feel and how they deal with it as well because listening to it is one thing but to make a living off of it like that's your every day like it's no longer an interest like you have to find crimes to talk about and talk about them so with that being said Thanks for tuning in. Let me know how you feel about true crime podcasts. Have you always hated them? Have you always been like, this is weird. That This shouldn't be a thing. Or are you also kind of on that? I think I'm good here. Like, I'm not really comfortable eating here. I'll take a to-go plate. Anyways, bye y'all. <laughs>